Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guys. We explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Water. Did you ever stop to think just how important water is to your everyday life? From health, sanitation, and nutrition to transportation, recreation, and cultural identity, water is just as important today as it has been for countless people for generations. Whether it's the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, or the endless list of rivers, creeks, ponds, lakes, and even fountains that dot Missouri's landscape, this series is all about water. So with that, let's dive right in to water and waterways. Our guest today is Thomas Riz Smith. He is a professor of American literature and culture at the University of East Anglia and is the author of several books, including River of Dreams, Imagining the Mississippi Before Mark Twain, Southern Queen, New Orleans in the 19th Century, Deep Water, the Mississippi River and the Age of Mark Twain, and he's the author of several anthologies, including Black Legs, Card Sharks, and Confidence Men, 19th Century Mississippi River Gambling Stories, and Christmas Past, an anthology of seasonal stories from 19th century America. Welcome to our Missouri, Tom. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, take us through the origins of not only River of Dreams, but also of Deep Water. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's right to think of them as companion pieces, really, because I think they probably, um, hopefully they do work together to, to paint a picture of, of Mississippi across the 19th century um, in, their, in their different ways. Um, but I guess you have to look to Mark Twain for their origin, inevitably, um, because that was, um, he was the person that, 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 that was my first encounter with, with the Mississippi as, as, as a space and a place and, and, and a literary idea, I guess. And, and I was really entranced, as many people have been, of course, um, by, his, by his portrait of the Mississippi. Um, of course, in Tom Sawyer and, and Huck Finn and Puddinghead Wilson, but actually, particularly for me, it was Life on the Mississippi um, that, that was my first real engagement with, with the river. And I was also immediately struck by the fact that, that Twain was obviously the most prominent um, writer associated with the river and had really um, placed his, his stamp on it, his copyright on it in many ways. But I felt sure that there were also a whole host of other people who had gravitated towards this extraordinary geographical feature, which was also an amazing symbol of, uh, of, of America right through the 19th century and beyond. And so that began um, a quest to, to think about um, what other cultural effusions um, the Mississippi had inspired uh, across the centuries. And as soon as I started digging, I found an enormous amount of material that, that actually, yes, many, many people had unsurprisingly um, thought about the Mississippi alongside Mark Twain. And yeah, for me then that, that, that project kind of split into, into two parts. Um, first of all, I wanted to try and rebuild the cultural life of the Mississippi before Mark Twain started writing about it. So before his work essentially overshadowed the river 
uh, and before his work became in, in, in the popular imagination, the defining account of the Mississippi. I wanted to start digging back into that, that cultural history, do a bit of archeology span and, um, and try and think about what, what had been done with the river before Mark Twain had made it uh, such a potent symbol in his own work. And the second part of that is of course, then trying to think about when Twain was creating his indelible portraits of the Mississippi, what else was going on? What was the, what was the broader context, social context, political context, cultural context for the river in those periods? Because you know, we think about these books so often appearing in a vacuum because they're, they're all that comes down to us of that place and space now. Uh, we, you know, we think about Tom Sawyer, we think about Huck Finn, and we don't necessarily think about other work that might have been in conversation with it, with those texts in its own time. Uh, and so I was really, I was really interested to try and recover some of those other voices um, that that Twain had perhaps um, drowned out. <laughs> um, you know, Twain is always adamant in his work that the view from the pilot house of a steamboat is the only is the only view of the river that really counts. But of course, there's plenty of stuff that you can't see <laughs> from the pilot house as well, despite the fact that he he seems to think it's a, a perfect panopticon. So I, I really wanted to bring in those other viewpoints as well. So that was the genesis, really. You know, Twain absolutely sits at the heart of, of both of these projects. But ultimately, I wanted to um, kind of build out that world around him and um, to try and take him from that place of isolation and to put him into conversation with with voices that came before him and that voices voices that that were um, that were part of the Mississippi River chorus at the same time as him. Now, as you're preparing these projects and certainly going through the material of what is necessary to understand the river and understand someone like Mark Twain, what archives are you visiting? What documents are you looking through? What places are you going to really to get a better understanding of this material? Yes, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and I think actually that's that, that's a question, uh, the answer to which kind of changed um, during the course of writing both these books. Um, because on the one hand, I was very lucky um, that I got to travel to um, a number of key places associated with Twain over his life and career uh, while I was while I was writing these. Um, as you as you may tell from my um, from my accent, I'm actually based in the UK, um, and you know, I, perhaps not as incongruous as it might sound because as as I think I, I talk about in both of these books, you know, there's a long there's a long transatlantic history of interest in the Mississippi, um, so I like to think I travel in some um, some interesting footsteps there, but. Um, but yes, I have got to um, visit a number of places which were crucial sites in, in Twain's life and career. So um, I got to visit the, um, the boyhood home um, in Hannibal, which is um, evidently a kind of very, uh, very significant, very significant place at the beginning of Twain's river story. Um, spent quite a bit of time in New Orleans at various different um, archives at um, Tulane and the historic New Orleans collection. And also I was very lucky to get to spend a couple of weeks at Quarry Farm, which is um, the place that Twain spent many summers writing um, in Elmira, New York. Um, so many thanks to um, the Mark Twain Center uh, at Elmira College. And um, yes, yeah, so that, that was really a remarkable experience. Yes, if you're lucky enough to be working on Twain, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely recommend applying for, for one of their fellowships because you get, to, um, you get to live and work in the place that Twain himself uh, was living and working. Um, for some of the most crucial years of his of his life and career, but uh, yeah, that alongside that, I think what's really interesting is that um, lots of the material that I work with, in, in a sense, most of the material that I work with across both of these books, um, 
was not really buried in archives as such. To, to kind of paint this broader cultural context of the Mississippi, I was interested in using as much stuff that would have been readily in the public domain across these years. And so um, the archives that I've been working with have often been digitized ones. So digitized journals, digitized newspapers, um, and you know, it's, it's remarkable the amount of stuff that you can access these days while you are <laughs> sat in the UK at home. Um, and um, you're still able to, uh, to kind of reach deep into um, the, uh, the, the depths of, um, of, of cultural history, um, thanks to digitization projects um, that have run you know, across the world by this point. So yeah, so it's a mixture of, um, of, of digital stuff, archival stuff, and actually a surprising amount of material from the British Library as well, especially for the first book, because in the first book, I do spend quite a lot of time thinking about the transatlantic history of um, travel on the Mississippi and writing about the Mississippi. And um, so it's remarkable what you can find, uh, what you can find in the British Library as well. So yeah, so I think those were the, the main um, kind of sources that, um, that I was working with. And, and uh, yeah, some of the sites that I was lucky enough to, um, uh, to go and uh, actually experience in real life. Now, the subtitle of River of Dreams is Imagining the Mississippi Before Mark Twain. Um, and as someone who has grown up in Missouri, I, I've certainly spent a number of, of experiences along that river um, as it kind of meanders along the eastern end of Missouri. Take us through that concept, not only how the river was important and very important for, in North American transportation and trade in those years prior to the Civil War, but also how people experienced and interpreted the river, especially for people who had never even set foot upon its banks. Yes, yeah, I think that's that's something that hopefully um, kind of jumps out from from both of these books that um, that people had you know significant um, emotional and um, cultural investments um, in the river, even if they themselves had absolutely never set foot on its banks, and even even for those who did. The, the cultural life of the river was just as important as the actual um, uh, experience of the river itself often. And I think M Mark Twain is the, perfect, is the perfect representative of that because of course, um, you know, while he is living along the river, he's also you know, consuming books about the river. And um, even you know, after he, uh, he goes back to the river in 1882, later in life to write his travel account, Life on the Mississippi about the river, He's experiencing the river firsthand again and he's visiting all these old haunts but he's also trying to get his hands on as much published work about the river as possible because uh, he, he himself understood that the, that the imagined river uh, and, and the river that emerges from, from, from the river of text that's published about it is often as important as, um, as, as the physical river in, in, in front of you itself. Um, so yes, so the river is deeply vital I think to, to America's conception um, both of itself and also of the world's conception of America uh, in the antebellum years, even before Mark Twain um, gets his hands on it, so to speak. Um, so yes, it is certainly vital to kind of opening up the interior of America, it's vital to trade, um, but it's also symbolically deeply significant. And, and it takes on a variety of different um, symbolic roles. Uh, I think you know, early in the century, um, there's that great quotation from from Timothy Flint, who's, who's a missionary and, and writer who spent some time traveling along the river frontier in the early 19th century. And he describes it as um, almost a limit to the range of thought. So at that point in the American idea, it, it really is um, a kind of far limit 
that, that has lots of imaginative potential and, and, and is acting as a magnet for a whole variety of people. And that's obviously something that's deeply aided by the invention of the steamboat and, and that's in its proliferation across the waters. But it also seems to kind of imbue certain um, ideas of American character and American identity in the early 19th century. And so you get a whole host of folk heroes emerging like Davy Crockett and Mike Fink, who are who are closely connected to the river. Um, so so it, it, it fulfills that kind of pop culture national identity role very early on. But I think probably, you know, most importantly, always, and that's perhaps through the 19th century, it's also the river uh, of, of enslavement. So when we're thinking about the significance of slavery in the, in the American national story, then again, the Mississippi is right at the heart of things. Um, because of course, it becomes the great conduit of slavery in America. People are sold down the river um, in their hundreds of thousands. I think it's reckoned about a million people are sold down the river between 1820 and 1860. Um, so that is always the overarching story um, of the river in this period as well. And of course, when, when it comes to, to civil war, again, the river is a, a symbol of, of, of nat national fracture. And of course, it's, it's crucial as a, as a theater of war in the civil war itself. And then again, it becomes a symbol of reunion after the war as well. Um, there's a sense that it's a kind of divinely ordained symbol of union. It's, it's, it's connective tissue that draws America, America together. Uh, yeah, and as, as I say, it's, it's also a place which has an extraordinary appeal far beyond its borders. Um, and I think the most interesting example of that are the panoramas that, that are created um, in the 1840s and 1850s, um, which are kind of, kind of remarkable uh, pieces of popular cultural history. And they advertise themselves as being paintings which are um, extraordinarily long. On, on a long stretch of canvas that's connected between um, two rotating pillars. And the idea was that, that this was like an early movie, uh, an early moving picture in that um, someone cranked a handle and this, this long canvas um, rolled in front of an audience. And one of the most popular subjects for this early piece of, um, uh, of, of moving picture technology was a journey down the Mississippi. And so audiences right across America, right across the world um, pay money to sit in front of a moving picture of the Mississippi throughout the 1840s and 1850s. And I think that's, that itself is a testament to how much the river um, is a symbol that fascinates people, that has a, that has a particular draw on them, that, that symbolizes a certain essence of America um, that they're interested in consuming. And this is something that links together, you know, an amazing cast of, of people as well, because uh, the most famous um, creator of, of, of the moving panorama is a man called John Banbard, and he tours around the world with his moving panorama of the Mississippi. Um, and he takes it to uh, to Britain, for example. So Queen Victoria um, gets to sit in front of uh, a moving panorama of the uh, of the Mississippi in the 1840s. Um, Charles Dickens goes to see it famously and reviews it at length in one of his journals. And Dickens is himself someone who's actually visited the river, so he gets to compare and contrast you know, his, his own rather unhappy experiences on the Mississippi to, um, to the John Banbard's um, audio-visual version of the Mississippi. Longfellow goes to see it, and it's when he's writing um, his, one of his most famous poems, Evangeline, and he bases 
his Mississippi River section of that poem on what he's seen in Banbar's panorama. And most interestingly, I think William Wells Brown goes to see Banbar's panorama. And William Wells Brown is um, someone who's experienced slavery in America. Um, he was enslaved from, from childhood, spent many years working on the Mississippi um, before um, escaping and heading to, to Britain. And he goes to see Banbard's panorama. And his, his main impression is, well, this is all well and good, but he doesn't really address slavery anywhere in this, uh, in, in this moving picture. And so um, to kind of counteract that and the popularity of, of Banvard's panorama, William Wells Brown sets about making his own panorama precisely about slavery in America. So you can see the way in which, just through that example, the image of the river is refracted and um, replayed right across popular culture in this period um, in ways that, that really draw the interest of people from right across the world, right across the social spectrum. And people use the image of the river to, to absolutely attempt to argue and define about, and to, to argue about and define what makes America, America in this point, to use it as a place of, of national boosterism, but also as a place of, of national critique as well. So, so yeah, it absolutely permeates popular culture in the years before the Civil War. Um, even even a, a, a popular American music form like minstrelsy, which of course sits right at the heart of, of racial tensions in America. Um, in a sense, that is also a product of, of life on the river at this point and, and draws from the kind of culture that, um, that, that black steamboat workers uh, are creating um, across the Western river system in these years. So yes, yeah, so it, you might say that, um, that popular culture is, is in a sense saturated with the Mississippi River in the years before the Civil War. And yes, when Mark Twain comes to it, absolutely, um, he, he makes the subject his own, but you know, in remarkable ways, he's also gravitating towards a popular subject, uh, as, as someone else has put it, um, rather than really creating his own cultural space here. He's, he's capitalizing um, on on the popularity of the river in those decades and, and making that story his own. In addition to the section about the kind of panoramas of the river, which certainly was, was extremely fascinating and I, and I appreciate your conversation there about its cultural significance, this idea of the Mississippi River as an American Nile, uh, where does this term originate and, and how does this comparison between the Mississippi and the Nile develop? Yes, that's uh, that's a really interesting image, and it's one that that we can definitely trace across the whole of the nineteenth century in one way or another, and well into the twentieth century, really. Uh, in a sense, it's an image that that, in its different meanings, defines that century of life on the river. And I think it, it starts in the early nineteenth century, really, and and it chimes with a period when there's a great craze for um, Egyptian culture. Um, more broadly, partly thanks, I think, to the discovery of the Rosetta, Rosetta Stone uh, and the unlocking of um, Egyptian culture that, that brings about. So that so there is a fad for, uh, for Egyptian pop culture references in the early 19th century. And I think that's, that's, that's part and parcel of the reason why um, the Mississippi is likened to the Nile. But obviously there's a, there's a lot wrapped in it as well. There is that sense of, of aspiration, of ambition on the part of, uh, on the part of America to, um, to, to rival great civilizations past. And there's a lot of kind of patriotic rhetoric wrapped up in that idea of, um, of, of the Mississippi uh, as a new Nile. Um, you can see that reflected in, uh, in, in place names like 
Memphis and Thebes and Karnak and um, and I think probably most most significantly um, Cairo as I believe it's called obviously spelt Cairo in in um, in reference to uh, the uh, the great Egyptian uh, city and it's and it's Cairo that I think is the most interesting example of of this use of the Nile as a metaphor for the Mississippi because it contains so many um, interesting ambiguities and contradictions in it because of course it's called Cairo in, in that classic aspirational sense with a certain with a certain amount of, of grandiosity and uh, and hope I guess but very famously it's the it's the river town that Dickens satirizes in both his travel book American Notes but also in Martin Chuzzlewit the book that he writes after traveling in America. And for him, it becomes the place that really represents the, the betrayal of promise that, that America represented to him. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a town that paints itself in these, in these great um, classical rhetorical flourishes. Um, this is going to be, you know, a great city in the new world. And, and he gets there and he's utterly, utterly dismayed and depressed by what he finds because to him it seems uh, like a very ramshackle collection of, of half-finished houses um, covered in mud. So, so that's, that's a very redolent image for, for Dickens, for example, that idea that America is not living up to its, uh, its rhetorical promise. But of course, it's also very wrapped up with the image of slavery in America, because of course, likening the Mississippi to the Nile is also to, um, is also to evoke those ideas of biblical slavery. And, you know, slavery in Egypt, um, the, you know, liberation from slavery in Egypt, all of those images get wrapped up in, uh, in that association as well. So, and of course, Cairo becomes the point of um, the junction point, as, as, as is the junction point of the Ohio and the Mississippi. Cairo becomes a very interesting symbol of, of, of freedom as well as slavery, because it is a point at which, for example, um, Huck and Jim are aiming for in Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So they're looking for Cairo because Jim wants to, um, to, to, to get to the Ohio and to cross over into freedom. So it takes on that, that symbol as well. I guess also it interestingly takes on uh, an image of pride for some enslaved people because of the, the association that it evokes with ancient Egypt um, and with that sense of um, a usable black history. So William Wells Brown, for example, when he encounters um, fragments of ancient Egyptian culture, um, when he's traveling in Europe, um, he, he sees it very much in the light of um, a kind of wider um, African history. And as well as the evocations of slavery, there's also that evocation of, um, of, 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 of yeah, that, that, that kind of pan-African um, sense of, of black history that he is so often seeking to evoke um, and that comes down through spirituals of course which play with that image and it, you know into the poem of poetry of Langston, someone like Langston Hughes and even into 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 blues music as well um, so for example in Deep Water I talk about one song in particular um, which is a song called Cairo Blues by um, a blues artist called Henry Spaulding who only recorded um, two songs in 1929 and Cairo blues was one of them and you know this is this is a, a good century after lots of that early early rhetoric of Nile as Mississippi is taking place but he's still playing with that idea of Cairo as being um, a junction point between freedom and slavery um, and he, you know he's looking to Cairo as a place of um, of hope and optimism and he's 
as I read the song anyway, he's, he's stuck in Natchez down in the cell where um, things might not be so comfortable for him. So yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's remarkable how the, the, the resonances of the Mississippi as Nile and the Nile as Mississippi um, really, do, really does echo down the decades. And it, it starts off as one thing and, and you really kind of filters through lots of different popular culture forms to become, um, become something rather different uh, a century later, but it's still that same underpinning metaphor that, 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 that echoes through the decades. Now, obviously Mark Twain is, is known worldwide for his writings related to the Mississippi River, but talk to us a little bit as you, as you cover in deep water there about how deeply connected Samuel Clemens was to this river at the same time throughout his life. Yes. I mean, obviously, I think probably most people listening to this will be aware that, that he grows up along the river. Yeah, moves to Hannibal, Missouri in, uh, when he's uh, about four, spends um, much of his youth there, although he does head out quite early to um, go and pursue different, um, different itinerant jobs, like working as a, a, as a prince assistant. But yeah, so, so the, the river definitely kind of rolls its way through his childhood. Um, and that's obviously something that he returns to in, in a number of his works, Tom Sawyer probably most famously. But yes, the, those memories of childhood uh, along the river really do uh, wind their way throughout his entire career. And, you know, it, it's there in his autobiography that he's dictating at the end of his life. It really does stay with him. And, of course, then he also spends a number of years actually working on the river. So he learns to um, pilot a steamboat, which is, you know, no easy feat, as he is himself is very keen to point out in many of his, uh, in many of his written works. Um, so, yes, Twain is never shy of... Um, uh, of pointing out what an impressive uh, job he did when he learned to pilot a steamboat along the Mississippi. But it really was a hard task. There's no way around it. Um, you know, there are no navigation aids apart from those which you were able to carry in your head. And so as a steamboat pilot, your job was to, um, in a sense, memorize the whole section of the river that, that, that you were working on. So in Twain's uh, case, that was largely the lower Mississippi. So from St. Louis to New Orleans, roughly speaking. Um, and yes, you would have to memorize it not just one way, but both ways, of course. And you would have to memorize it during the daytime, but also in the night as well. Um, so you're constantly having to refresh your memory, constantly having to um, renew your sense of, of signposts that, that you could see along, along the riverbanks that, not literal signposts, of course, <laughs> metaphorical signposts that you were able to, um, to spy along the river. And you would constantly have to um, talk to your colleagues uh, in the pilot house um, for any, any river news that you might need to um, be aware of. Um, so yes, yeah, so it was a remarkable feat. And also, I guess it embedded you right in the heart of the steamboat industry, which of course is itself a very interesting place to be. As a pilot like Twain, you were really at the, hop at the top of the, the river hierarchy. Um, you were very well paid. Um, you had a certain amount of, of clout and swagger and Twain clearly enjoyed that. Um, but you're also you know, partaking in an industry which again, runs in many ways on the work of enslaved people. So as a steamboat pilot, you're, you're, you're transporting enslaved people down the river um, to the slave markets of New Orleans. You're transporting cotton, which is grown and picked by enslaved people. So, so you really are um, part and parcel of, 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 that, of that complex of slavery that, that, that runs throughout uh, America in the antebellum years, 
all things being equal, I think Twain probably would have stayed in that business. I mean, it's very difficult to predict. He certainly said that himself in later years that, um, that you know, he would have stayed on the river, that he, uh, he would like to be back on the river. But uh, the Civil War comes along and gets in the way of that plan. And the river, of course, becomes a, an important um, site, both as a battlefield, but also as a, as, as a point of control. And some of, his, some of his former river colleagues do stay on the river and fight for various, uh, well, for either some for the north, some for the south. And Twain himself, after, after dabbling um, with a Confederate militia for some time, probably, although I think it's still a bit unclear exactly what he does in those early days of the war, um, he heads out west, he leaves the river behind him. But to say he leaves the river behind him isn't quite right, because of course, as I, you know, as I <laughs> hopefully make clear throughout deep water, um, the, the river never really leaves him, imaginatively speaking. And of course, he does return to the river a number of times, you know, not, not many times in the scheme of things, and um, only for a few significant visits, but he does return to the river. Um, but where he does return to the river is imaginatively. And of course, um, you know, there's a 20 year period in the middle of his career, which in many ways is his most uh, productive creative period. And, and during that time, he, you know, he constantly goes back to the river. And it's never the same river twice um, that, that he gives us in those river books, um, but it is clearly a constant source of inspiration. And in a sense, you can track his relationship to some of the major themes that, um, that go on uh, in this period, you know, politically speaking, in relation to American life more broadly, through the way that he depicts the river. Because it starts off with a very kind of burnished, nostalgic sense of things in, um, in his first writings on the river, where he really revels in that, that memory of what it was like to pilot a steamboat on the river in the years before the Civil War. He, um, he kind of gives that sense of nostalgia to readers um, who, are, who are coming out of the war, because he's writing his earliest things about the river in the 1870s. And he's just having fun with it. You know, he's, he's really um, portraying the, the steamboat pilot as, a, um, as someone who has mastered um, this distinctive American space and he's casting himself in that role. And he's finding analogies, I think, between his old career as a, as a steamboat pilot and his new career as a, as a writer. But as time goes by, that kind of gets increasingly darker. And I mean, you, you can certainly see that in, in Huck Finn and the way that Huck and Jim's journey down the river um, is on the one hand a journey through a remembered river of the 1840s and 1850s, but is as much about what's happening in America in the, um, in the 1880s and the rolling back of the advances of, of civil rights that the, um, that the years after the Civil War brought. So you can see him, him playing with that along the river. And, and then you get to Puddinghead Wilson, of course, which is his last major statement on the river. And it's a very, very kind of bleak portrait of, um, of American life, I think. It's difficult to read it any other way. Um, and particularly the way in which race is, uh, is being um, dealt with as, a, as an issue, as a pressing issue in American life. Um, so yeah, so you can in a sense see Twain's disillusionment, I think. Um, you can track that across the way that he engages with the river um, across his career. And yeah, so, so in, in a sense, I think, you know, it really is, I, I, I feel, this, the central symbol of Twain's life and work. You know, it's the, it's, it's the one thread that you can follow um, through everything. And obviously he's, uh, he's very much a, um, a writer with many interests, works in many genres, travels right across the world. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the Mississippi is always there, always, always the kind of measuring stick he carries around with him, um, always the, the place that he goes back to. And, um, uh, and yeah, hopefully deep water really draws out the way that, that he's doing that, but he's not doing that in a vacuum, that, that he's, um, 
he's shaping his river, river really in conversation with the other portraits of the river that, that, that emerge at that time of people who've gone before him as well. Um, you know, he's, he's well aware of the kind of material that I cover in River of Dreams, the, the first book. And um, yeah, he's, he's constantly reaching back to that earlier work as well as, um, you know, being engaged with the work of his contemporaries. So, so yes, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it flows throughout his life and work undoubtedly. Now we've given a lot of attention to Mark Twain, certainly, and, and, and deservedly so, but another interesting element is, is the significant individuals who helped develop this view of the river as an American landmark and an American icon around the same time and even after uh, Mark Twain is writing about it. So tell us about some of these individuals and, and their contributions to the understanding of, of this American river. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a real it's a cast of thousands, I think, <laughs> in many ways, and, and all kind of taking part in that in that same kind of chorus, I think, that um, that, that joins together to form the, the um, a composite portrait of the river that hopefully emerges from from both these books. Um, well, I've already mentioned once, but I do think that William Wells Brown is um, is a really remarkable figure and someone who I think sits really interestingly alongside Twain because so many of his experiences on the river were similar to Twain's, but of course, you know, the fact that he's, he's enslaved when he's working on the river, you know, means that they are, you know, absolutely diametrically different as well. Um, because, you know, Brown grows up along the river like Twain, he spends much of his youth on steamboats like Twain um, before um, escaping from slavery and traveling the world much like Twain, but always again, like Twain, um, coming back to, to the Mississippi as a symbol in his work. So, so I think, you know, William Wells Brown was prominent in his day, probably um, less remembered now than someone like Frederick Douglass, but, um, but, but was, was, was a major figure in the abolitionist movement in, um, in the antebellum years. Um, and, and he, you know, remains prominent into the 1870s and 1880s. And uh, yet again, always returns to his experiences on, um, on the Mississippi um, when trying to, you know, either explain his experiences of slavery to others or also, you know, look, you know, talk also about liberation and his own um, self-liberation. Um, so, you know, the river for him is as much, is, is, is of course a symbol of, of entrapment and, and bondage and slavery, but it's also the route that he, he takes to freedom. And, and uh, it's also, you know, he, he, he does figure it like that in his work a number of times that, um, that the river is a, is a route of liberation. Um, as well as a route of bondage. So, so I think, you know, he, he is a figure who I think is really interesting to think about in relation to Twain. You know, they really, there's an interesting conversation between, between them, I think. Um, yeah, as, as, as someone who of course is, is, is a Mississippi observer from, from across the Atlantic, I definitely uh, would like to say a word here for the European travelers who head to the river uh, in the antebellum years, who, who I talk about at length in, um, in the first book and, and, and a bit in the second book as well. Um, because uh, you know they they do an enormous amount, I think, to to establish the the significance of of the Mississippi as a, a, a as as a symbol of national identity um, in America, um, because they're all drawn to it and they all have intensely strong reactions to it. And in the main, <laughs> those are those are famously negative reactions. And that's why I think um, Mark Twain himself is also you know really drawn to these travel accounts. He spends a lot of time with them when he's writing Life on the Mississippi, and he obviously enjoys a lot um, uh, that he finds in there. Um, so, yeah, so Frances Trollope, for example, I think is, um, is a fascinating figure in that regard because she is uh, one of the earliest people to, to write these, these really big, best-selling, controversial travel books about America. 
in the early 19th century. And, um, you know, she really goes all out in her in her depiction of the Mississippi. You know, she uh, as far as far as she's concerned, it's, it's a perfect symbol of everything that she hates about America. Um, and she uh, and, and she and she 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 is very uh, she really has a good time <laughs> describing why that is. And, uh, you know, Dickens is kind of similar in his response as well. But on the other side of things, uh, you know, I think it's also worth pointing out someone like Harriet Martineau. And I always like to say a word for her as well, because um, she comes from um, the city of Norwich in the UK, which is uh, where my university is based, where I grew up. Uh, and so, so she's, she's something of a hometown hero. Um, so unlike Trollope and Dickens and others like them, she finds a lot to like in the Mississippi. And um, you know, perhaps that's a lot in large part because she travels with a very different kind of set of political concerns than than, than Trollope at least. Um, she travels as an abolitionist, as someone interested in women's rights, someone on that that that, that progressive cultural um, avant-garde to some to some extent. Um, so she spends lots of time with, with various abolitionists around America. Um, and even though obviously the Mississippi is the river of slavery at this point, she also finds in it a very um, rich symbol of, of of the new world you know she uh, she says yeah it's muddy uh, and it's um, it's unappealing in some ways um, and it's freighted with some unfortunate things but you know within that mud and within within that uh, that the, the the giant scale of it you can feel that sense of world building so I think she finds in it a very uh, a very resonant image as well for the, for the potential of America as a place and a space for people with um, political political views like her despite everything that was um, there to critique as well. And, you know, to, to square that circle rather nicely, when William Wells Brown is traveling throughout um, the UK after his escape from slavery, he spends some time with Harriet Martineau in her home uh, in the Lake District at that point. Um, and it's extraordinary to think that you have these people who have such different um, life experiences, different trajectories um, through the world, um, united in their experience of the Mississippi uh, and you know, coming together in the 1850s in, in Harriet Martineau's uh, drawing room in the Lake District. So, um, so that's remarkable. I guess it also is probably worth you know, mentioning someone like Harriet Beecher Stowe at this point, because you know, she, never, she never sees the Mississippi as an actual physical location, but the way that she talks about the river in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is, you know, of course, in many ways, the most important book of the 19th century, uh, arguably, she devotes a long sequence of, of the book to a journey down the Mississippi, which is where I take the, the title River of Dreams from actually. And yes, she has a very strong sense, I think, of, 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 of the ambiguities of the river at this point as well, uh, which is the, the quote I use as the epigraph um, for the first book. And, you know, this, this was an image of, of the Mississippi that really traveled the world. You know, if you, if, if you wanna choose one image of the ninth, of, of of the river in the nineteenth century, before Mark Twain, and even you know during Mark Twain, after Mark Twain, arguably this is probably um, the vision of the the Mississippi that, that people who never got to see it themselves would have been most likely to encounter. So arguably, you know that those those few chapters in Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, are, are one of the representations that that should be um, you know immediately considered when you're thinking about other people shaping popular ideas of the Mississippi at this point. Um, obviously we talked about John Banvard and his moving panoramas and I think you know those are a, a fascinating pop culture form which obviously attracted audiences of you know again around the globe. But I think perhaps less prominently and less famously I think one of the one of the stories that really emerges in Deep Water I hope is not necessarily any named individuals but the culture that 
um, black steamboat workers created um, in, in really difficult conditions, both before and after the Civil War. I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the story of life on the Mississippi. And, and you know, in, in, in ways that do ultimately chime with popular culture, because you get um, numerous accounts by outside observers of, of the kind of life that steamboat workers um, had to endure, but also the kind of lives that they built for themselves and the subcultures that they built for themselves on steamboats, you know, from, from the years of slavery um, right through to the end of the 20th century. And one of the main um, most distinctive parts of that was music. And, you know, in many ways, modern popular culture, you could argue, um, flows in large part from the, the kind of musical culture that, that roustabouts working on steamboats across the Western River system created um, in the, from the 18, 1840s, 1850s onwards, um, because it flows out into blues, it flows into jazz, um, it, it becomes part of mainstream culture in the early 1920s. And it's really remarkable, I think, that, that, that a group of, of, of workers who were extraordinarily badly treated, marginalized, exploited, um, and that's, you know, that's, that's after slavery as well in the 1880s and 1890s, were you know, also at the same time making music, making culture um, that would go on to travel the world in many ways. Um, so I hope their story is one that really comes out firmly from deep water because I think that's that's such an interesting part of, of river life that has been obscured in many ways and really does deserve to to be better understood and better known. So yeah, so there's a there's a sampling I think of some of the <laughs> some of the people who um, who were instrumental in in the idea of the river both before, during, and after Mark Twain. Now we talked about River of Dreams. We've talked about deep water. Tell us about some of the edger projects you're working on right now that listeners might be interested to look into in the future. Uh, well, yes, um, I suppose uh, the, the the I've just started a project, you know, very early in it still, but I think um, but yeah, it will be the next book at some point on something that you know I think relates to to, to deep water, um, but is also a, a slight pivot as you will as you will hear um, because I'm writing a book about Mark Twain's um, relationship to London as a place. Um, so you know my work. Previously relating to Twain has been very much about, um, you know, that the, the, the that symbol of his work that is that is kind of ultimately American in the Mississippi, and of course, you know, as I as I argue across those books, it's also very much an international symbol. But um, but yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm going from that to think about Twain in the wider world and to think about his um, his relationship over his life and career to uh, to London, and. Um, to think also, as is my way, as you can tell from these books, about the other people who travelled from America to London in the 1880s, 1890s, in, the, in that really interesting period after the Civil War, but before the kind of modernist invasion of the American modernist invasion of Europe, if you like, in the, um, in the early decades of the 20th century. Um, so that's one project um, that I'm working on, and, and you know, Twain clearly um, is, is, is a thread that, that connects them because, you know, he's constantly fascinating figure you know there's um, he, he really does contain multitudes and uh, it's difficult to think we'll ever get to the bottom of him really but also I've just published a book and this is uh, does not feel very seasonal uh, right now but nonetheless I've just published an anthology of um, 19th century Christmas stories which um, Twain does feature briefly in the, in the introduction but he was not a big fan of Christmas himself um, so he does not feature in the actual anthology but um, but yes it's a collection of um, of, of American writing about Christmas um, right through the 19th century. And I think um, 
yeah, hopefully it's a, a very good read. So, you know, bookmark that one for, <laughs> for, for later in the year, perhaps. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Tom. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been great to talk about um, the Mississippi again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.